0: Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation, back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. This is Meet the Early Day Saints, and we're joined today by Dr. Katherine Gines taylor a scholar of late antique Christian art history and iconography. We're talking about a book that she co-edited. It's called Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints. And Dr. Taylor contributed a chapter called Inclining Christian Hearts, Work for the Dead. Catherine, it's really good to be with you again.
1: Blair, as always, great to be in conversation with you.
0: And we have spent so much time together when I was at the Maxwell Institute, and you were there as, uh, as the Nibley Scholar.
1: Yes. I look back on those four years as a real highlight in my academic career, and it was so great to be there with you.
0: I know, and it's so nice to be together again. And, and you know, we've done an interview before about previous scholarship that you've done. So in this case, it's a book that you edited, not a book that you wrote. So I actually wanted to start with that as you and your co-editors were putting this project together, what that process was like.
1: In May 2019, I was sitting in a hotel room in Rome and I received a text from Christian Heal inviting me to a meeting already in progress with Jason Combs. And I was so immediately on board with this project because, you know, as an art historian specializing in ancient Christian art, I really understood the potential that it had within my community. I think I was also a little overcome with the vision of the aesthetic potential of bringing art and material evidence into conversation with text, you know, a format that we are so often more familiar with.
0: Yeah, when you say the aesthetic potential, you're basically talking about the beauty of this book that includes so many images in full color. And I hope readers can appreciate that. That's a really costly thing to do, but it really just brings history to life, like we're looking back through time.
1: I think catching the vision of the project, the whole editorial team, as well as the administrators at the Maxwell Institute, I'm so pleased that they agreed to kind of take the risk of high quality printing specs and paying for the extra color, because I think that so much of that world comes to life right in front of our eyes with this volume. Mm.
0: And with your chapter, it's about work for the dead. And at the beginning, you invite readers to, here's a quote from you, you invite readers to suspend ideas about who you think the early Christians were and let them represent themselves. And so I wondered, thinking back before you became a specialist in this stuff, what kind of ideas did you have about early Christians that have kind of been overturned?
1: You know, I, I thought about early Christians in some very boundaried ways. Uh, I really hadn't thought of them in the landscape and the environments and the geographies that they inhabited. And I think it's easy to kind of categorize or pigeonhole this, this seemingly monolithic group of people into a very normative and maybe even orthodox way of thinking. And the more I've come to know and appreciate and learn about the early Christian groups and even individual people within those early centuries. I'm always surprised and delighted at how human they are, at our shared aspirations for a kind of spiritual life that is different than ordinary quotidian everyday life.
0: Yeah, for me, I would look back and just sort of think about them as being just like Latter-day Saints, except maybe they didn't have electricity and wore different clothes and stuff like that, <laughs> rather than living in a very different historical context. And like you said, they have so many similar themes of concern, like death, obviously, like spirituality, like you know their religious lives. But then they're in this very different context for me that I don't think I really appreciated before I started reading the work of historians.
1: Truly. And, and, you know, there's so much that is complex and informative and nuanced. And that's also why I appreciate looking back in history through the lens of material culture is because... Sometimes it agrees with the way that we've thought about things in the past or even texts that we know about. And sometimes it pushes back in some very surprising and human ways.
0: When we're looking back, we're looking at like ancient texts and stuff. But I want you to expand a little bit on that, what you call material culture. This is basically like actual real life stuff. What kind of evidence are you talking about specifically that opens up these new views?
1: So as an art historian, I look to objects, but but typically not just any kind of object, objects that help inform us through the medium of art. Uh, so we see symbols or narrative representations, or even um, some objects that combine ordinary daily use with uh, symbolism.
0: Like an oil lamp that has Christian images exactly. on it.
1: Exactly. And and I love those kinds of immediate, ordinary, everyday objects. So it doesn't have to be high art that you might hang on a wall in a museum. This is art that often graces small objects like marriage rings or uh, fertility armbands or, yes, oil lamps. My favorite place to look at material culture is, of course, catacombs, and I look at sarcophagi. So
0: Yeah, this is where people are buried, yeah.
1: Exactly. So that's really my specialty. So I spend a lot of time in cemeteries and in crypts, as well as museum storehouses and museum floor rooms, uh, looking at things that kind of get pushed off into the corner.
0: And people will see images and some of the photos that you've taken yourself where they'll get to see some of the beautiful works of art that where people were buried in these sarcophag. Is it sarcophagi? I should ask. Uh, is that correct? Sarcophagi. I don't know.
1: Um, I always, I say sarcophagi.
0: Okay. So that was the one I didn't uh, That's okay,
1: there. no worries. We can edit whatever you want. <laughs> but it means like
0: bone eater, right? Doesn't yeah.
1: So it's it's flesh eater. So sarcophagus is yes, that's the right. flesh eater. That's right. So it's So the bones it,
0: stay. That's right. The
1: bones typically stay and and they could be reused over and over again and often were either by families or by later generations. So they would often, you know, brush the bones to the side or remove them and put them in other repositories and and reuse the sarcophagus.
0: All right. We're going to talk more about the material surrounding death here. But let's take a look at the phrase work for the dead more broadly here. You're inviting Latter-day Saints to think about that phrase a lot more broadly than we usually do. When I hear work for the dead, I tend to think about baptisms for the dead and, you know— Temple ordinances, type of stuff. But you say work for the dead can encompass a lot more than that.
1: Yes, I do. And I look to the early Christians to kind of see where they were trying to do things that were efficacious on behalf of their ancestors, their family members, or their neighbors. So some of the things that they would do are very accessible to us even today, and they were accessible to them. They would pray. They would keep vigil at gravesides. There were certain days of the year that they would go and they would honor their ancestors. They would light candles. They would invoke the intercession of saints and martyrs, as well as Christ himself, uh, on behalf of of the dead so and they felt that all of these were inclining their hearts toward their dead and that they had an effect in the salvific kind of ascension of the soul
0: right so work for the dead is not just the kind of ordinances that we perform as Latter-day Saints. And we'll talk about baptism for the dead and early-day Saints later on. But it also means things like visiting graves or like how bodies were prepared for burial or how people thought about death or the kind of rituals that surrounded it. So even today, visiting a grave on on a particular holiday or on someone's birthday would be work for the dead. Praying for a loved one who's dead would be work for the dead. So like ancient Christians and Latter-day Saints, yeah, all kind of do these Works for the dead.
1: We share that, and I think of work for the dead in antiquity as more about being in relationship with these people. You know that that if you could keep certain rituals or certain uh, vigils, that it kept those people alive, not just in the afterlife, but they ke- it kept them alive and influential in your life, in the life of the living.
0: Hmm. In the chapter, you take us back to 4th century Spain, where there was a church council that made some rules about burial and about what you call the veneration of the dead. Talk about some of those rules and why they were put into place.
1: Yes, there was a council called the Council of Elvira, and there were a number of canon that were set up as rules. And I love looking at these rule canons because usually we can read between the lines and say, all right, if there's a rule against something, it probably means that people (laughs) are practicing, that they're doing something that often ecclesiastical centers are going to kind of want to either rein in or take control of themselves for different purposes. One of my favorite canon from this council is one that prohibits the lighting of candles in cemeteries during the day. And, you know, you think of the people who would probably be available to go and keep vigil in a cemetery during the day and to bring a candle or share libations with the dead. And they were probably trying to make this rule against Female vigil keeping uh, in cemeteries. They associate this lighting of candles during the day with a pagan practice, so that it would be taboo. And they also made further practical argument against it by saying, "Well, the light is keeping spirits alive, or keeping you know, it's not allowing the deceased to rest." So sometimes
0: you have to <laughs> turn that light off. I can't sleep. <laughs>
1: exactly. So sometimes you have to look in between the lines of the rules to kind of get at what is actually going on in practice. And it must have been common enough for it to receive some kind of ecclesiastical censure.
0: Yeah. So it seems like people were kind of doing things their own way in some ways. And then the church is an institution steps into control that or shape the work for the dead that people are doing, sometimes with an eye toward what doctrines might suggest or something, right? So I remember growing up, I I heard that cremation was kind of frowned upon within our church, and I was told, oh, that's because, like, in the resurrection, we want people to— know, it would sort of disrupt that or make that a, you know, worse process, which is sort of, I don't don't know that that was ever officially taught, but Latter-day Saints would come up with ideas to sort of defend particular policies. Do you see similar things with ancient Christians?
1: Yes, to a certain extent, particularly as time marches on. So in the very earliest days, we'll find that burial and commemoration of the dead is very much a family affair. It often takes place in the home. And then we start to see, particularly as churches are built over commemorative sites for martyrs and saints, that we find a new kind of practice called burial ad sanctos, or holy burial, where people, especially if you can pay for it, Uh, if you can make an offering or have an important sarcophagus to place near the saint that demonstrates your faith in Jesus, then we start to see more of an institutional, church-oriented kind of practice around death and burial. Now, of course, I, I would like to not be as cynical as maybe I am uh in thinking about how that revolves often around uh donations and money and that sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is is that often You know, a sarcophagus, first of all, is an elite object. It's an expensive object. Mm -hmm. It requires someone to be of a certain economic and social standing to be able to afford something like that. And those are the kinds of things that you often find buried near the holiest of saints. For example, Mm. the Junius Bassus sarcophagus found very near the tomb of St. Peter in old St. Peter's, right? And of course, that being a a primary or chief location of holy burial.
0: Yeah, they'd want to be near that really... Amazing person, right?
1: That's right, because the idea was that that person had influence in the afterlife. They had received crowns of glory, and they could make a kind of intercession for you Mm. because of your demonstrated righteousness.
0: I was just reading a book about early miscarriage in the United States, in United States history, and the book talks about how there were excavations done around churches, and they found— where people were burying their babies, their stillborn babies, right next to the church against the rules. And they would bury them where the rainwater was coming off of the roof, sort of as a way to maybe symbolize or suggest baptism, like these babies were were not able to be baptized. And so, you know, this was not what the church was doing, but this is definitely what church members were doing.
1: Right. That's so fascinating, especially— kind of the the proximity to the church, but also that symbolism of water that's kind of baptized mm-hmm. the church and then falling on those graves. That's beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah, I really like it. I remember interviewing Thomas LaCour about Work for the Dead, and you just reminded me of something that book suggests, which is that even church buildings, like a church building, kind of grew up first and foremost around graves, around burial places that, you know, early Christians... Early day saints were meeting in homes and meeting different places like that. It wasn't until later that church buildings arose and most of the earliest ones were connected to burial sites and and pilgrimage sites for like where martyrs and others were buried. So the church building itself kind of grew out of work for the dead.
1: Absolutely. So very early on, you have people commemorating or coming by or stopping by the burial place of early church fathers, of early apostles. And you really kind of get a sudden insurgence of building around this kind of cult of the saints, this cult of martyrs. By the time you have Constantine's mother, Helena, who makes pilgrimage to Jerusalem, she goes to the Holy Land and she recognizes these sites and and funds, ostensibly, churches and places where people can come and meet and even take away little souvenirs or eulogia that uh, had been in contact with these early venerated people. So it does, it grows up and becomes very, very popular through the Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, even today, you have pilgrims who will follow along certain pilgrimage routes in order to find their own selves spiritually, but also to be in contact with with these places.
0: Right, and being in contact with these places was also kind of being in contact with these people that had come before. And you talk about intercession as playing a big role in the work for the dead. Intercession being the idea that as you've mentioned, someone could intervene on your behalf or sort of plea to God on on behalf of you. Like maybe they, they're closer to God, they have a better standing or something, and they can stand in for you and maybe vouch for you or something. So let's talk about this culture of intercession a little bit.
1: In the chapter, I talk about two specific women who are intercessors. One is Thecla, uh, who acts as an intercessor on behalf of a, a pagan woman, actually through a dream that her mother has. And then I also talk about a woman called Vibia Perpetua, who also via dream acts as an intercessor for her younger brother, who she has seen in vision as as suffering, when she comes out of her vision, she knows that she must pray in her state of incarceration. She's actually being incarcerated as a, as a Christian believer, and she takes it upon herself to make intercessory prayer for her brother, and subsequently has another vision of his rest in alignment with Christian salvation. So yes, intercession was popularized in the literature and i think that especially by the kind of just the wealth of material culture that we have that speaks to the these same kinds of practices that people were taking those examples and demonstrating them in their own in their own lives
0: you mentioned the woman who is interceding for for a pagan, was that unusual in early Christianity? I mean, Christianity has long taught the necessity of baptism, for example, and, you know, that, that Christ is the only name under which people can be saved. So was it unusual for a Christian to believe that a pagan who had died without Christianity could—that you could intercede for that kind of a person?
1: I think that it was probably an unusual—unusual unusual and maybe even shocking story— But it gained so much popularity. This is by Thecla, a follower and and evangelizing companion to Paul. And and I think that it probably underscored that mission (laughs) that Thecla and kind of the whole Pauline approach to Christianity would have taken, right? that salvation is available to all, that, you know, Paul's message is so Gentile oriented, it's so Mm -hmm. very much connected to bringing people into a new kind of family, a new kind of way of life. So yes, while I think the example is, is strange, I think it would have been shocking enough uh, to kind of call attention to that Pauline evangelizing and the acceptance of of people from many different backgrounds
0: yeah so as Paul is sort of stretching the boundaries of who could be included in the flock that could extend not just to people who weren't Israelites or weren't Jewish but also to people who never had been and and you know as Paul's pushing that that border outward you have someone like Thecla who's also doing it around pagans or You know, even people who have died already. So it's it's really interesting to see Christianity develop that way. Because today, for Latter Day Saints, we think about proxy ordinances. There's kind of this easy path, or maybe not easy, but just like a straightforward thing. Like after someone dies, you can do. Their work for them, and then they can accept it, and etc. Right? Um, we think about baptisms for the dead, and your chapter talks about this. It's only mentioned, I think, once in the New Testament, right? In First Corinthians, correct. And it's just like kind of a he kind of says, "Oh, why else would they be baptized for the dead if there's not going to be a resurrection?" He's using it. To argue for resurrection, he's not teaching baptism for the dead even. So it's kind of this aside. Does does the evidence show that that these practices of baptism for the dead looked like what Latter-day Saints are doing today? Or did early-day Saints have a variety of views on what baptism for the dead might be?
1: So as far as I can tell, um, baptism for the dead as a practice is rare and only— practiced by certain groups and in certain locations. I, I think the Marcionites are one group of people who have a particular kind of acceptance of baptism for catechumens or those who have been kind of coming into Christianity, but who have died before they could be baptized. I actually iterate the kind of experience that that baptism would have looked like in my chapter. But it it really seems to be kind of a rare occurrence. Paul himself mentions it, you're right, in First Corinthians, but in other correspondence to other communities, it's not mentioned at all. And so I think it is not a standard practice, but something that may have been experimented with by certain groups of people or even discussed by certain theologians and one kind of interesting find that i that i uh, make reference to in my chapter is that many theologians who are discussing this kind of fascination with baptism for the dead or the redemptive acts necessary via baptism are, are kind of those who are trained in Egyptian or Greek-Egyptian ways of commemorating the dead. And I ask the hmm. question, is it any wonder, actually, that that a culture that is so deeply steeped in care for the dead and the afterlife, as the Egyptians would be asking, they're the ones that are really kind of focused hmm. on... On those questions, so I don't take it any further than that in the chapter, but but I mm-hmm. I find that absolutely fascinating. I think that geographies and environments and cultures matter, and it wasn't it certainly was not a ubiquitous practice across the board in Christian earliest Christianity.
0: Latter-day Saints will enjoy your chapter. You include a number of quotes and things about baptism for the dead and what that might have looked like that people can check out. And they'll be excited by that because we do it today, and it sort of feels like, oh, that, that really justifies our practice or you know, maybe proves something about what we do. Are there other practices or an example of another practice that Latter-day Saints don't do that you find particularly beautiful or that you think would, would be appealing to Latter-day Saints that we don't practice?
1: you know I thinking back about just commemorating the dead, uh, you know we we do practice that to a certain extent when we go to cemeteries of our ancestors on Memorial Day, etc mm-hmm. but one thing that that we do not practice or at least officially is a kind of you know going back to that council at Elvira, this notion of lighting a candle and taking, you know taking some time to me- meditate and have some contemplative experiences with not just maybe not just our own sense of the of the holy spirit but maybe drawing into our lives the care and concern that certainly our forebears must have for us taking time to meditate about that i think is something really beautiful that I think would be a lovely benefit to us and maybe also to them.
0: Yeah, I think so. As, as part of the grieving process, I think there's probably some cultural pressure now to get through the grieving process quickly, that we should be uh, looking forward to resurrection or reuniting instead of sort of spending time in this in-between place. And the candle also reminds me of kind of in-between... Christ's death on the cross and then the resurrection, right? He's buried in this tomb. There's this dark period. There's a, a a period of uncertainty. and And then the light begins to dawn. And it's a little light at first, sort of like that candle.
1: I love that image, Blair. And I think a lot about that liminal space, that in-between-time space. And especially as we're coming upon Holy Week— I often take time myself between Good Friday and Easter morning to spend time in that very in-between space where so much work, literally work for the dead, was accomplished by Jesus Christ. We know this via Restoration Scripture. We know that it had such uh, that those that time of of harrowing hell. Is also to us an example in which we can uh, have hope in something that isn't quite yet at the present moment, right we We all have people that we that we miss that we are that we feel bereft from in our lives.
0: yeah, that's right beautiful, Catherine. I really appreciate that. Before we go, I also just wanted to ask, as a person who specializes in material culture, if there's a favorite artifact that either comes up in the book or just something from your own studies that has enriched your spiritual life that that you think Latter-day Saints could appreciate or or learn something from?
1: It was so hard to to pick one, but yes, there are a couple of things that I would like to talk very briefly about. First, I remember one time— I was doing research on my PhD dissertation, and I was in the British Museum, and a a tray of small artifacts was brought to me, all having to do with the Annunciation, in which Mary uh, receives the angel Gabriel, and she's spinning. She's pulling out this thread of scarlet and purple to weave for the veil of the temple, And this is a narrative that comes out of an apocryphal account. But this scene was brought to me on a small marriage ring that belonged to a woman. And it really impacted me so deeply to see that women of faith and devotion carried these things with them throughout their daily life. That this wasn't separate from their existence, from their practices, that this was constantly before their eyes. And I consider so much of what I do as an art historian to also be theological work, because in so many ways, art is theology. I experience God in my work, even as I am the work of his hands, the work of my hands also represents my spiritual devotion. And I think that the sacred art of looking and writing is also an act of creation. And I I believe that also being able to interpret image to have a kind of visual exegesis is a redemptive act, not just for me, but it is a redemptive and restorative act from the past for our kindred dead, and, and I think also for ourselves. So that little tiny object really was such a source and is a source of so much of my methodology and my reason for, for what I do.
0: That's how we turn our hearts and how hearts are turned to us. Thanks for that. Catherine. I appreciate that. Catherine Taylor served as the Hugh W. Nibley postdoctoral fellow at the Neal Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship for a number of years. She's a specialist in late antique Christian art history and iconography. She earned her PhD in art history at the University of Manchester. She co-edited the book that this series is focusing on ancient Christians and introduction for Latter-day Saints. And her chapter, a beautiful chapter, is called Inclining Christian Hearts, Work for the Dead. Catherine, thank you so much for the work that You've done and for sharing it with so many people.
1: Thank you, Blair. I have loved this conversation with you.
0: Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians An Introduction for Latter day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.